Podcast with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing and consulting firm for behavioral health. Today, we are speaking with Nikki King. Nikki King is a force of nature and one of my favorite people here in Indiana in terms of innovative ways that she's working within addiction treatment. Um, But before I talk a little bit more about her, I do want to hear from our sponsors, Track 9. Track 9 Informatics is a data-driven approach to substance use disorder and mental health treatment. By assessing nine pathology and resilience factors that have been scientifically shown to be most critical to client success each week, Track 9 identifies which clinicians excel at treating which client symptoms, provides facility-specific clinical outcome analytics compared to national averages, and learns your facility-specific predictors of treatment success or failure all of which help your program improve client outcomes, support payer negotiations, and reduce AMAs. To get a free consultation on how this data-driven approach can improve your program, call 833-998-7229 or email contact at track9.com. Nikki King is basically the founder of Margaret Mary Health, which was previously a part of Margaret Mary Hospital, and they're very unique IOP program. What is truly interesting about what Nikki has done is, as she'll tell a bit about her story, you know, she grew up in a rural area in Kentucky and very much lived um, some of the opioid crisis, seen it with family and friends, so very you know personal experience to her. But then she ended up coming to rural Indiana, and as we all know, providing addiction treatment services in a rural area is incredibly challenging. You have massive transportation issues. The population is not very dense, so it can be hard to get the numbers you need to make an addiction treatment model work. And then on top of that, it's often a lot of Medicaid or Medicare. So funding is also difficult. So she worked incredibly hard to build a program that I've simply not seen anywhere else in the US, um, a program that works incredibly well. And Basically, through sheer force of will, she was able to engage multiple stakeholders um, across the hospital, the jail, the court system, um, public safety and law enforcement, and really to bring together a a community of care and and create a program that was funded and has actually ended up being at least self-sustaining, if not profitable, um, to provide care for people that usually are not able to receive it and to provide it in a way that was incredibly effective. So I'm very happy to have Nikki on and have her share her story. You know, hopefully it can inspire others in terms of what's possible and also give people some innovative ideas around creating curriculums and programs uh, within a rural setting. That is something that just a lot of people have not been able to do successfully yet. So with that, let's jump in. Hey, Nikki, really appreciate you coming on the show here. Do you just want to tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you're doing here in Indiana? Sure. Um, so I'm Dr. Nikki King. Um, I am the manager of behavioral health and addiction services at Margaret Mary Health Center uh, in Batesville, Indiana. We're a rural community in Batesville, about 6,000 people. I have been in this role since 2017. Um Prior to that, I, I worked in statistics 
crunching crunching numbers first in economic research and now and and then in healthcare and um one of the things that I was in charge of was um using patient payer data um to try to identify unmet health needs for the critical access hospital in our community and one of the biggest needs that I kept persistently finding was that for example on the frequent flyer list to the emergency room the patients who kept coming in over and over and over again and you know within a small period of time were overwhelmingly soccer addictions patients and they were not able to be connected to treatment because I had the entire the entirety of their healthcare spend data and I was able to see that there was no follow-up visits with a psychiatrist or therapist or anything and of course they'd be right back and so that led to discussions about you know how do we create a long-term fix for this and then that led to discussions about, you know, the inadequacies of the mental health care systems and, you know, how do you afford it as a critical access hospital, which led to a lot of really creative solutions. So <laughs> that's how I got into this. Uh, so a little background for listeners if they're not familiar with the critical access hospital system. But critical access hospitals are small hospitals and it's a federally regulated, right? So what's the metric? It's no other hospital within within how many miles? 45, I think. 45. So very rural areas, you know, not a large patient base. And so there's always revenue struggles as well with a lot of critical access hospitals across the U.S. And so if you're trying to add on services, you know, it's an additional challenge because you're already pretty strapped trying to provide the services that you can just because there's just not a lot of population as well that's using a critical access hospital. So I guess two things. One, can we get a little bit about your background? Like originally you grew up in Kentucky, right? So how did you start yep. there and how did you end up in Indiana? Um, so, yeah, I grew up in southeastern Kentucky, um, you know, kind of infamously during the rise of the Oxycontin epidemic. So I, I watched what happens to rural communities as they get consumed by addiction pretty early on. And you know, I think I went through the five stages of grief on that. I swear I was never going to live in a rural community again. <laughs> I was never going to do this again. And then I started to see that it wasn't just our community, that this wasn't some kind of deficiency with us, that this was happening everywhere. It just started with us. And I realized that I had learned a lot from my time that I spent growing up in that and that maybe I should pay it forward. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of um, that's kind of my my background and how I ended up in, in Indiana. I did my master's degree at Cincinnati um, Xavier University, and, and they put me in contact with Tim Putnam, who is also very passionate about rural health care, and that's how I ended up at Margaret Mary. <laughs> so a little bit of a personal question, but so obviously, you know, you saw a lot of people getting stuck within the opioid crisis growing up, you know, but you made it out, right? And I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are in terms of why you were able to find an avenue out and why so many other people get stuck. Luck. <laughs> Pure, unadulterated luck. Uh, I just, you know, what is it? Uh, wide is the path of destruction and narrow is the gate. <laughs> like I, um, I think that a lot of other people really like to, city uh, <clears throat> bands, like to kind of talk about, you know, all the things that they did right to get out. I, I will never tell you that. I had so many things go right for me. I, I, my grandparents, um, you know, they took care of me while I was growing up. My grandmother was passionate about education and me being able to get the education that she didn't get the chance to get from the time I was old enough to talk 
all she told me was get out, get out, go experience the world, come back if you want to, but get an education, be able to do whatever you want to do. And so I had that burned into my brain. Unfortunately, my grandmother passed away while <clears throat> I was still young enough to think she knew everything. So that really got ingrained in my mind. Um, I had teachers just step up time and time again. They, you know, I got labeled a smart kid, and so they would cut me a break so I could have a job and turn my homework in late because they knew I was good for it, breaks that they wouldn't cut other kids that, you know, maybe weren't as good as students. And then when I got to college, time and time again, I had professors step up and take a special interest in me and coach me along. And, you know, I <laughs> my first year of college, it was actually really funny. I went to go sign up for classes at the University of Kentucky, and basically nobody from where I'm from goes to the University of Kentucky right out of high school, maybe one or two. But the vast majority of them come home within a year or so. Okay. But I um, I went to go sign up for classes, and they signed me up for 21 hours of honors classes. And I remember the person signing me up saying, well, just try some of these, see which ones you like, and drop the rest. And that made sense to them, but nobody in my family had ever been to college. So I was like, I, well, I'm not going to drop a class. Like in high school, <laughs> if you drop a class, that means you're failing, right? So I actually tried to do all 21 hours, and I wow. almost went insane. My grades suffered, and I thought, oh, my gosh. You know, I've been a big fish in a small pool, and now I'm a small fish in a big pool. And just when I thought I couldn't go on, I, I had people step up time and time again and you know, I mentioned Tim Putnam, who's been such a great mentor to me. He's he's drugged me up behind him every step of the way. And so luck, 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 luck. That's it. That's all. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. So you've got a pretty deep personal connection. And then you've obviously got a lot of experience that you've built up here. So, you know, we met what, a couple of years ago. I think I was down there pre-COVID, right? But you've got an amazing yep. program. It started off really small, um, yep. but you're growing it now. And we'll get into that. But I just want you to talk a little bit about the, this first program that you started, how it got started, how you got the funding for it. So a little bit first of what is it, right? And then can you tell us how it got started and what the funding model was? So after I crunched all that data, we determined that we had a serious problem with being underserved in mental health and addictions. The question then becomes, how do you address it, particularly in an environment with limited resources? Um, and so I wanted to accomplish a couple of things. First, I wanted to target the people who were most at risk of dying. So that kind of puts you on the addiction side and that puts you on your at-risk groups. So you're recently incarcerated, you know, you're homeless, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I, I really wanted to reach that group. The problem is, is that group is incredibly and notoriously difficult to engage in treatment. So if you're dropping a treatment program in, you know, New York City, that'll be okay because you've got enough economies of scale that you can have a few people not show up and still have a full group, you know, and you'll still have plenty of people to engage in treatment. The problem with trying to offer that level of treatment in a rural community is that a lot of times those people are not in a stable enough life position to really hold with their treatment and to really make good, healthy decisions for themselves at that point. And so, the problem, though, is that if they don't show up to treatment, you've spent so much on overhead doing prior authorizations, doing the scheduling, the registration, getting them in the group, only to have them come one time and not show up. And then you don't know how long you need to save that spot for them if they're going to come back. Because if you discharge them and then they come back, you got to do all that paperwork again. And, of course, the overhead is what kills you when you're operating on a razor-thin margin. So the question became, 
how do you keep these folks engaged in treatment and long enough to see the good outcomes, long enough to see the positive effects of, you know, the work that you've put in, but also how do you keep them in there long enough that you can sort of make some kind of decent return if for no other way than death by a thousand cuts, right? So a ton of little tiny Medicaid reimbursements that adds up to be enough to cover everything. So then when you start talking about how do you engage a population that is previously unengageable, you need to kind of go for the barriers. So a lot of the barriers, for example, food insecurity, housing insecurities, et cetera, requires partnerships, but also there's a motivation factor. Um, a lot of folks who are in early recovery, their brain is not in a good place to make healthy decisions and to think rationally about whether or not they need to be in groups. Also, group therapy or any intensive therapy, for that matter, is not always fun. Um, if you're doing it right, it should be a lot of work. And, I mean, it's good work. It's, it's for a good cause, and it pays off in the end, like all work. But like all work, nobody really wants to do it. So, <laughs> you know, you need a really good incentive. And so that was why we reached out and partnered with the local criminal justice organizations in our region in order to, you know, increase compliance. So, you know, they're not really a full drug court. Unfortunately, uh, those are not widely popular in Indiana. But, you know, what they are, for example, is a condition of probation. So if you want to continue to be out on probation, then you need to make your treatment a priority. And so a lot of times that's the only shove people in early recovery need. And then once you get them over the hump of that first month or something, they're in a much better headspace to be able to continue to make, you know, good decisions on their own. But not only does that help in the retention of treatment overall, that lets you be able to give the intensity of services that these guys really need to get better and know that they'll actually come. <laughs> so win-win. A couple different pieces here. I think one, uh, so this, this was originally, it was an intensive outpatient. It was an IOP program, correct? Yep. Okay. Um, and it's small. So as you mentioned, was it small by design or was it small just based on the number of professional participants, patients that you had available? Um, well, clinicians are really hard to come by in indiana and they're also extremely expensive because they're hard to come by scarcity and all that uh i really couldn't afford more than one <laughs> Great. that's actually a huge issue with a lot of whether you're an mat clinic or a traditional provider you know or doing something a little bit more innovative finding staff and it's a problem for critical access hospitals in general right i mean they have right. whole entire departments dedicated to basically wooing in physicians from big cities <laughs> exactly. trying to say hey yeah. come live here it's great um and i think last time i was there one of your counselors was actually driving from what was it cleveland right which is a several hour drive every day yep yeah and you know the thing that's really hard too is this is an extremely hard population to treat right um the levels of you know trauma and you know concurrent mental illness and stuff like that in, in this population makes them easily easily some of the most challenging patients in any setting to treat particularly when you add the complexity of them being under the thumb of the criminal justice system and one screw up and you know you lose all your progress so it takes a special person to be able to to work in that as well so you're slowly growing the program so from a recruitment angle what have you found to be successful i mean you've got people that you either have to woo in or that are willing to drive a long time to deal with you know a difficult patient population what what attracts talent and what keeps them with your program? 
Um, honestly, I put my feelers out and I get an idea for who's really passionate about this field. I mean, some people, some people became social workers because they couldn't hack into business school. Those are a minority. The vast majority of people who become social workers are because they're really passionate about the work they do and they really want to make a difference. Then, then they get kind of put into the grind of the corporate healthcare system where, you know, this is the position. This is the way this position's always been. You will function within the confines of this position or you won't have a job. And it just kind of slowly grinds the love of their position out of them. But if you can get them and you can really get them engaged and really get them talking, what would this look like? You know, I always tell everyone the same thing. Build me your Disneyland program for whatever patient population that you're passionate about. Build me what the perfect program would look like. And then let me work backwards from there and see how much of that that I can put together, either through strategic partnerships from people in the community or grant funding or different things like that, whatever weird hook and crook avenue I can come up with. And I get real creative sometimes. <laughs> Let me figure out how do we offer every single piece of this in a way that is financially sustainable. And you kind of give them control over their, over their destiny. And then they kind of start to see a future where healthcare can be patient centered instead of, you know, just a, a nine to five grind. Yeah. And then the other challenge is not just attraction, but retention, right? And that burnout, like you talked about, is a, a big issue. So in many programs, there can be a very high caseload. That's not the case with your program. But like you said, it is you know, sometimes a difficult group of people to work with. Um, so what have you found in terms of just self-care and even kind of a rah-rah-rah around retaining quality, quality clinicians and therapists? Well, honestly, I think even what I mentioned before, giving them control over their own fate. So it's like, okay, you've got to at least meet this kind of minimum criteria for us to break even. However, you can meet that however you want. So I give them total flexibility on that. Um, I let them, you know, have a lot of control over their hours. And, you know, I think a lot of people are like, huh? (laughs) But for example, I prefer to treat our providers like adults. You know, if you've got a kid and they need to go to the dentist, I would rather you come in late another day and make up those hours and not take PTO. Because, you know, if you take PTO for things like that, then you're not going to have PTO for your vacation. And then you're going to get burnt out and you're going to get tired. Everyone gets sick of their job eventually if you can't get a break from it. And, you know, as long as it comes out good in the end, I don't care if you see a patient at 9 o'clock at night. Sometimes that's better. You know what I mean? So I've had providers come in on Sundays and make up hours during the week and different things like that when they've had stuff to do. Or sometimes, you know, the providers are just like, I just need a break. Like, okay. And, you know, let them flex their hours to kind of meet that as long as they stay within the guidelines. And I think that's been really effective for providers who have high volume. One thing that I really love doing in the addiction sphere is really getting creative with the use of the peer recovery coach. I think that those those kinds of team members and their role in healthcare has not really been super well defined, which I think is both <clears throat> nerve wracking and uh, leaves a lot of potential for creativity. One thing that I've really enjoyed is mimicking a team care model with them so teaching them the ins and outs of clinical documentation and using them to help augment the documentation for the providers so that the providers spend less time documenting you know a peer a good peer recovery coach won't run you all that much money i think 12 to 25 dollars or something like that's the pay range not nearly what you'd pay for for a good provider 
but if they're, you know, helping with the documentation and helping drop charges and helping with compliance and things like that, under, of course, the supervision of the clinician who's right there, just like an MA would do for a doctor, then you can squeeze way more volume out. Like a primary care physician with no MA might see 8 to 12 patients a day. A primary care physician in a team care model using an MA to help with the documentation will easily see 20 to 30. Hmm. And it's no different in the mental health arena. That's really good advice. So, all right. So going, let's go back to the, the patient and the program model. So you talked about some of the challenge that patients have, right? We're in a rural area. You have a, a large lack of access to transport or reliable transportation, right? Yep. And some people are having to travel 15, 20 miles. So on top of the challenges you have around addiction and levels of motivation, you know, you've got these transport issues and, and these also monetary issues, right? It's expensive to travel. It's expensive to pay for gas, and that's hard for a lot of patients. Um, so you created a unique program or collaboration with basically the jail, right? Yep. So can you just explain how that, that played out? You know, how did you first form that relationship? Were there challenges, you know, getting people on board? And then what does it look like now? Yeah. So, um, you know, when folks are on probation, they have to, they have to show up anyway for, you know, drug screens and to meet with a probation officer. So we just started providing treatment at that same location so that they could kind of get it all done in one spot. Um, so that was one way that we kind of helped with transportation. Um, another way that we helped with transportation is now we actually just straight up provide transportation from the jail to the health center as well as from the courthouse to the jail um, or from, sorry, from the courthouse to the clinic or wherever folks need to go. We just straight up provide that transportation as part of our fairly qualified health center um services so that helped a lot too but just being able to partner with them um early reactions always tough especially in indiana i feel like there's a lot of pressure on the criminal justice system to really criminalize substance use mm -hmm. disorder i think that's the expectation of a lot of communities is that you know if you've got a drug problem in the community that's getting worse and worse, it's just how, how much longer can you put them in jail? How much tougher can we be on crime? Uh, I think it's a very misguided approach where they feel like you can just wring addiction out of people with enough <laughs> sentencing. And they don't seem to understand that there's very little reform in the criminal justice system. You keep sending these people back to jail over and over and over. It's just tossing infinitesimal taxpayer dollars and you're not going to get any squeeze for all the, or any juice for all that squeezing because you know, it's no different than trying to arrest your way out of diabetes. Yeah. Like, you know, you can tell people, hey, get your blood sugar under control or we're going to throw you in jail. You know, maybe they got, you know, some diabetes where, you know, maybe they can lose weight or make healthier choices and they won't need the insulin anymore. You know, maybe that'll work for a small, small minority of the population, but the vast majority of them are going to need insulin. You're not going to arrest them past that point. <laughs> so, you know, um, trying to get the community to understand that and to align incentives so that, you know, the criminal justice system doesn't look like they're just, you know, being lax or being lazy or letting people fall through the cracks. And the general public understands that this is part of the job. You know, it's their criminal justice system exists in theory to remedy crime. And the way you remedy crime is getting folks into recovery so they're not going back to that lifestyle. So, yeah. I think it's a big challenge for justice systems across the U.S., right? There is often a punitive model, and that's supported as much by the community as it is by, you know, the, the law enforcement and the judicial system. But what people tend to forget is, 
the vast majority of people that are going into the jails or the prisons are going to come back out in fairly short order. <laughs> right. You know, they're going to be right. in your community. And so are you just looking to punish people, right, by making them sit in a place and then come on out? Or when they come out, do you want them to have, you know, hopefully have gained some some skill sets or some insight or found, you know, a journey, a pathway to recovery, you know, and have opportunity as well when they get out, you know, because if you don't have an opportunity, then you're much more likely to return back to the lifestyle you were living. And so there's definitely exactly. a strong need to look at how we can help. I don't think they think about like, you know, they're always talking about the taxpayer dollars and how the healthcare system generally is underfunded. You know, your typical blue collar working class family can't afford the healthcare they need. So why are we paying for it for these people? And they don't realize you're spending way more to incarcerate them over and over again than you would have if you just gotten them treatment. And then that way they could get out and get a job and actually participate in the economy. So, you know, if you can't do it out of the goodness of your heart, can you at least do it out of love for the economy? <laughs> right, right. And I've seen that really consistently in terms of a reluctance to work or partner with any kind of treatment program. But then when they do, they start to see that. They see that lack of recidivism, right? They see the positive outcomes that they're having in patient lives. And it's a big change. Suddenly a PO who just expects to see the same person back six or seven times over the course of their career, you know, suddenly doesn't see them come back. And that changes minds. And I don't know if you've had that same experience with your program there. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we work with uh, one probation officer who... She always tells me that uh, every every week she gets a newspaper and checks the obituaries to make sure that none of her people are on there because mm -hmm. she feels, you know, like she's a personal failure. If she has somebody that shows up on there for something like an overdose, she feels like she failed them, and that's not why she got into this job. And I think that, you know, speaks a lot to the kind of pressure and stress that the criminal justice system is under to solve an issue that they don't have the tools to solve because, yeah. again, you can't scare people out of a medical condition. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, it's just a divide in lifestyles, right? You know, I've, I've sat in drug courts and, you know, you have the people that are in there for the charges and they're looking at things one way and the judge can't understand it because he's never been in those shoes and doesn't understand why they keep repeating the same behaviors. And, you know, there's just a disconnect between, I think, the life experiences of the people in the room sometimes. Um, okay, so let's go back to the funding component here. So again, there's not a lot of money here. And even within the critical access hospital system, there's not a lot of money. A lot of, a lot of hospital systems are struggling in rural areas. So you're going to, I think it was Tim, right? And saying, hey, I want to start this new program. It's going to cost a lot of money. I don't know if we're going to make any money on it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so <laughs> how... <laughs> right. So how were you able to get the hospital to support the funding for this in the beginning? I think it was hard. Um, you know, Margaret Mary Hospital at the time, we've spun off into the health center now. But, um, you know, their their mission is to improve the health of, of their communities. And our community health needs assessment was pers persistently showing substance abuse and mental health as their top needs. And so, you know, that was definitely part of the conversation as well as, again, those frequent flyers in the ER and med surge, you know, uh, readmission rates, things like that. And, of course, overdoses in the community and the public health concerns and the, the burden on, you know, the public health system of HIV and hepatitis C. I mean, we're not that far from Scott County, Indiana, where they had a huge HIV outbreak, and we actually had a lot of traffic you know, coming through um, from Scott County. And so it was really a matter of time, you know, if we don't try to get, you know, you know, kind of the injection use under control before we got big issues. So 
it was as much cost avoidance and quality of care improvement, you know, strategic from that standpoint. <laughs> and so what numbers did you get? You know, you've been running this program for a couple of years now. Were you able to actually show a monetary reduction in ER visits or some of these more expensive medical conditions? Yeah, so I have some data to that um, that I actually compiled for my doctoral dissertation. It's a little bit hard to to prove causation, you know, mm-hmm. um, but there definitely is a, a correlation. I believe the last time I ran the data, and this is right off the cuff, but I believe it was something like $1,600 a year less in ER costs and something like a 40 to 60% improvement in primary care utilization versus ER utilization. And that was among the the individuals that participated in your program or are you kind of talking yep. across the board okay from your program that makes sense all right and so talk to us a little bit about those outcomes what kind of outcomes did you see because i know you started off you obviously have a data background right what outcomes were you tracking and what have you seen in terms of results so we were looking at program retention uh because again as i mentioned before attrition is one of the the big challenges of any iop but it's an even bigger challenge in a rural community where there's a lot more barriers to care so how many people actually stuck it out for the full six to eight months which is an extremely long iop but it's because we address a lot of things besides just mental health and substance use and then i was tracking um opioid overdose deaths or any overdose deaths actually as well as, you know, hepatitis C and HIV rates, you know, how successful were we at getting those folks into treatment? I was tracking who left the program and why, what demographics were the most unsuccessful at remaining in treatment to completion, as well as um, tracking folks, you know, within um, a year or two years after completing the program, how many of them recidivated? So how many of them ended up coming back with new charges? Um, in the state of Indiana. So those were some of the data points that we looked at. To date, we've only had one overdose death, and we've treated eh, 120, probably, patients at this point, which we're very proud of. Really, really stellar results. Uh, We really credit a lot of that to our program, uh, having a strong basis in trauma-informed care and really doing a lot to address childhood trauma, which is endemic in rural populations, especially in Indiana, and really the underlying cause of most substance use issues, um, at least in our experience. I believe we're at 70% of the complete the program. So, you know, they may have, you know, one or two relapses during that um, and then return to treatment, re-engage, and then, you know, finish strong. Uh, right now, about 98% of them are employed within the first month of the program. We require them to maintain employment throughout the course of the program. So, you know, paying taxes, everyone. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, interestingly, uh, one thing that kind of popped out of the data, which informed our newest program, is that the demographic of patients who were least likely to succeed were young parents with uh, minor children, um, either in the home or in foster care or, you know, some combination thereof. Um, And so we really started to envision, you know, why, for starters. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons. I think there's a lot of guilt um, involved. I think, you know, when folks develop substance use disorders, maybe their kids get taken away, they get put in foster care. It's really hard to build up self-esteem or self-worth in that person that helps them overcome their substance use issues when they blame themselves for ruining their children's lives. Mm. And 
I think that's really hard. I think a lot of them come from situations of multi-generational abuse and poverty, so they don't have great skills to parent their kids that they've just acquired naturally, so you kind of have to coach them through those sorts of things, as well as the fact that a lot of their kids are extremely high needs. You know, again, going back to the example of a kid who may have been put, put in foster care, you know, now the kid themselves has a significant amount of trauma, and for anybody who does a lot with kids, traumatized kids act out in, you know, challenging behaviors. And again, challenging behaviors plus parents who are poorly equipped to deal with it, plus parents that are early in recovery and trying to work and parent, as well as catch up for years that they might have lost while they were incarcerated. You know, maybe they had a newborn and then they were incarcerated for substance use. The newborn gets put in foster care and when they get out, the kid's three. You know, most parents sort of learn as they grow. You know, mom and dad are growing with the baby. They're learning how to parent the baby as the baby grows. And, you know, they lost three important years in their parental development as well and learning how to to handle their kids. And I think that our society places a lot of shame, especially on moms and them being able to say, I don't know how to handle my child. And I think that shame is compounded even more when you feel like you're the cause of it or people are going to judge you and say, well, yeah, but that's because, you know, you're an addict. And I think that all that creates a really impossible situation for a lot of our patients to succeed in. And so our newest program is actually aimed at moms who are dealing with substance use whose kids have been placed in the foster care system or have had some sort of intervention uh, from the Department of Child Services. And As before, it really targets a lot of their traumas and, you know, the problematic parenting that they might have experienced in their life growing up and trying to give them more tools to not only deal with their trauma, but also to parent more effectively and to parent a traumatized child and really, you know, kind of heal that family unit. So that's some of the ways that we're using data to try to improve quality of care. Yeah, I think one of the things that, you know, we've talked about before and I really like about the program is it's very recovery capital oriented, right? You've got your addiction, your mental health piece, your trauma pieces, but saying, hey, what skills do we need to give people in the program to be successful, right, in their recovery and in in life in general? You know, and that's, that's something that is really challenging, especially if you're coming from, I mean, I don't care if you're in an urban center or rural area, but if you grow up and everyone around you, you know, no one has ever gone to college, maybe haven't even completed high school, not a lot of people work, the challenges you see with parenting, you see everywhere. And so if that's all you've ever known, it's very, very hard to envision a different lifestyle, right? And right. no one has those skills. So if they don't have them around you, how are you going to, you know, see them? How are you going to know that maybe there could be a different way of doing it? And so by creating programming that provides that recovery capital that provides those skill sets, I just think is tremendously beneficial. We're a big fan. <laughs> <laughs> what about the recidivism rate? You, you mentioned that. Have you seen reductions in recidivism? So the last time I ran that data was March 1st of 2020. And at that point, we had only had one person uh, recidivate and get a new charge hmm. um, for substance use. That said, our numbers took a freaking nosedive during covid so i don't even know what they are right now i probably don't want to know i haven't reran it since the pandemic started sure. we really saw a dramatic increase in, in relapses and recidivism and suicidality and overdoses i mean basically every possible metric everything just got so much worse between the pandemic and the election everyone kind of went insane so 
I think we, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It got worse. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. I was actually just going to ask that question. You answered it for me. So I, I assume that would be the case, but that's, yeah, it's difficult to hear. Every conceivable metric got worse. We're, we're starting to see it recover. Um, you know, it, it's coming back now. I think that our patients in particular seem to be benefiting more from having more face-to-face care. I hate that because in ways it really helps mitigate some of the issues that we were having with transportation if patients can do more telehealth. But I think for a group that is traditionally very isolated anyway, I think they really need that kind of social connection and, you know, to kind of get out and about and things like that, I think is probably affecting their mental health very positively. So now that, you know, our treatment programs are all, Coming back to in-person, they've been doing better. Now with the Delta variant, we'll see how long that lasts. So so you've talked quite a bit about some of the stakeholders. Obviously, you've partnered with the hospital. They originally funded the original model before you split off. You obviously had a close relationship with uh, the drug court or the court system, at least, as well as the probation parole department. Who were some other key stakeholders in the community? So we partnered a lot with faith-based organizations. Uh, A lot of times, you know, you get folks that are straight out of incarceration. They've burned every bridge that they've had in their life. They, you know, they don't have food at home. They don't, they only have the clothes on their back and things like that. And, you know, we can, we can provide food, but, you know, um, clothes and things like that is where the churches have really come in handy. Uh, We can kind of put out a message on the grapevine and get a lot of donations like that for, the food, we actually partnered with our dietitians in a program that is aimed at giving cooking supplies, locally sourced produce, and cooking training to, you know, low-income families to help them figure out, you know, ways that are realistic for them to prepare fresh fruits and vegetables. It's really targeted at people with young children in the home because obviously that significantly changes the recipes that you're making mm. um, a lot of times. And so we've had a lot of luck uh, partnering again, with the locally sourced produce scene um, and, and getting, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables to folks who, frankly, didn't get a lot of opportunity to try them growing up or a lot of access themselves. So those have been really key partnerships. Partnering with our um, emergency response team. So we use uh, One Voice and Choices and things like that to really be able to help transport people and come out and meet patients where they are. Uh, we're partnered with an organization Cardinal Recovery that works really heavily with us to make sure that folks who in a residential treatment have a good solid handoff plan and then in turn we've got access to residential care which is something that we couldn't really provide as a fairly qualified health center Hmm. so honestly our friends are are many (laughs) that's what keeps it going right right I I mean I know that you have been instrumental and obviously other people in the program, but I mean, just pulling that together is that easy, right? Finding all those partnerships (laughs) and getting everyone talking and and supportive of the program. So kudos to you for pulling it all together. It's it's amazing. Thank you. Um, So I think two other questions I have is one, actually, so going back to this, do you guys offer MA, are there MAT, is MAT involved in your treatment protocols, either Suboxone, Methadone, or Vivitrol? Yep, we do Suboxone and Vivitrol. Uh, we don't do methadone yet, although, you know, it's something that we've looked at. Um, frankly, we don't have any space right now. That's the big reason. You wouldn't believe how much space it takes to do methadone. But, um, you know, that's definitely something that we would probably be interested in in the future. But, yeah, right now we, we do do MAT. Uh, we're pretty stingy with it. We um, 
we give doses like, you know, every three days or so. Mm-hmm. Um, folks can only get MAT with us as they're active in our treatment program. Okay. It's hard. You know, um, diversion issues and things like that, I don't know what the right answer is. I really don't. Um, in one of our programs, uh, Suboxone is one of the most preferred abused substances, which I find interesting that everywhere I go, I hear people that say that Suboxone can't be abused, and I'm like, I've got a whole room of people who <laughs> beg to differ. And so it's hard at the same time, but I'd rather them be abusing Suboxone than heroin. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I don't know what the right answer is. I don't feel confident that we're doing it right. I don't feel confident that anyone is doing it right. But if anybody feels like they are, I would love for them to tell me how. Because <laughs> I just don't know how you err on the side of caution there. How do you do the right thing by the patient? It's really it's hard. Yeah, yeah. And there's just not a – there's no single path, right? I mean, that's the challenge is there's a certain right. level of individualization. And certain things work for certain people, not for others. Going back to the funding component, so you said that you – separated out as your own organization now and before that happened you you basically became self-sustaining right yes can you talk about that a little bit i mean this was mostly medicaid funding is that correct yep so what did you have to do or what did you find that was successful that allowed you to become self-sustaining you know on on medicaid oh you know sacrifice my soul to the devil um no (laughs) other than that Again, the big thing is keeping your providers, or in my case at the time, provider very busy. Um, you've got to keep, you know, the no-show rates down, which, again, partnering with Department of Child Services and um, probation really helps a lot with that, you know. Um, and that way, again, using the peer coach, it's a small extra expense for, you know, double the revenue. And so uh, really using those folks to the top of their license and keeping the overhead super super small um and that was and because again, the peer recovery support coach could do some of the documentation so the other yep. paperwork elements while the therapist was you know doing billable services right yep it's yep. always my goal that the therapist only sees patients mm-hmm. like in perfect world for me they would never have to touch the documentation they would have somebody who's like scribing that for them they would never have to you know fill out a FMLA paperwork or, you know, anything like that, that we would have somebody who is able to do that for them, even if that person is having to do it under dictation or under supervision. That way the therapist's number one priority from the minute they get there to the minute they go home is seeing a patient every second of the day, but also not burning them out. So, Were there things that you found that were billable that you weren't billing for originally that helped out? Um... Not at the time. Uh, in retrospect, uh, we were not really uh, billing for peer support services, and those are billable in the state of Indiana, um, I believe. Uh, so yeah. I know that we've kind of looked at that now. Uh, really watching when it makes sense to bill the IOP rate versus the group rate, because sometimes sometimes they're shockingly comparable. You know, I think people think the IOP rate is just by default higher. But sometimes the group psychotherapy rate in different cases can actually work just as well. And there's not a ton of regulation on which one you bill when, other than the fact that, you know, in order to build the H0015 code, you have to have the nine hours. Yeah, I, one thing is partial hospitalization. I, I don't see any way that a partial hospitalization program would be successful outside of having housing component with it. 
I think IOP is really pushing up against the bleeding edge on that as well. So, I mean, the PHP rates are pretty decent, but you'd be better off in bundling that in some kind of residential or sober living, I think. Sure. Um, and then you cost, talked about the cost reductions. Anything creative that you were able to do that you think helped from a, a cost reduction angle? Yeah, I mean, again, that's just kind of leaning on the partners so that your case manager, for example, if you've got a patient who tells you that, you know, they don't have any clothes, they don't have any food, that's when you reach out to your, you know, maybe your church partners or whatever and let them kind of get the stuff together so your case manager's not running after all that and you're not buying their groceries. Um, there's other programs to be able to kind of farm that work out to letting, you know, the probation officers are, are wildly helpful um, in helping, you know, with jobs and, you know, helping people figure out how the transportation works and different things like that. And by really kind of embedding them into the treatment team, you can really use them to the top of your license. We've recently partnered with Rural Works to help with that as well. So now we actually meet with them each week as part of a staffing meeting so that every single one of our patients goes through the Rural Works program, which teaches them how to, you know, uh, well, oh, as well as Indiana Work One. Um, mm. And teaches them how to, like, fill out a resume and how to sit for an interview, gives them stopping for steel-toed boots, helps them figure out child care. And then they're able to do all that. And your case manager slash peer recovery coach doesn't have to do that, which means your peer recovery coach can focus on documentation. So just different things like that that help cut costs and personnel. And, I mean, really, we've ran the whole, you know, the original IOP, we ran the whole thing with two people. Right, right. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Exactly. So if you had to do it again, if you had to rebuild this program from scratch, you know, what have you learned? Would you do anything differently or would you make recommendations to other people maybe trying to try and replicate this model in a different state? I would absolutely recommend that I, you know, to replicate it. Um, one thing that I learned is uh, we tried to launch it without psychiatry, largely because we couldn't afford psychiatry. But uh, that was a mistake. This this population is extremely acutely mentally ill in addition to substance use. I've heard tale of people who just have substance use without any kind of depression, anxiety, bipolar, whatever. In practice, I've never seen it. I've never seen it one time. If it exists, I don't believe it. Uh, it's like a unicorn or like Bigfoot. Theoretically, it's out there somewhere, but nobody's ever really proven it to me. So I think that it would be extremely difficult. And so, you know, if you couldn't afford your own person in-house, that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, seeing if you could partner with somebody who might have some access to that or maybe get your claws in a really good primary care doctor who's really passionate about this population, there's a lot primary care can do to pitch in if they're willing. So even from the psych end? Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, frankly, the only man that we really see written to this to this population that I don't see primary care right on the regular is lithium for bipolar disorder. And the thing is, is I know primary care doctors who write lithium, not a ton, but there are some who go back and get extra training and psych to add that one medication. And with that right there, they really, I mean, the vast majority of them are on things like Wellbutrin, Vivitrol, Suboxone, Lexapro, um, Zoloft, you know, things that primary yeah. care doctors write all day long. So they really, I feel like a lot of primary care doctors feel like they don't have the skill set to treat this population, and I feel like most of them do. <laughs> well, all right, Nikki, I really appreciate the time. I mean, like I said, I've just I've always been so impressed with the program, and so I'm glad I finally had you on the podcast here. And I wish you the best of luck as you continue to grow and expand it. <laughs> just <laughs> amazing.
because um, I mean I know how hard it is every step of the way you know being in a, a smaller area or a rural area getting the funding and you know getting everyone together and changing mindsets it's it's no easy task true <laughs> <laughs> so if someone wanted to either get in touch with your program or you know get in touch with you what would be the best way to do that um you could reach out to me on my email it is uh, Nikki, N-I-K-K-I dot King, K-I-N-G, at M like Margaret, M like Mary, health dot org. Um, or you could call our organization. Our front desk is 812-933-5406 and just ask for Nikki and they'll transfer you. Well, all right. Thanks so much. And everyone who's listening, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we look forward to seeing you next time.